Well, um, <clears throat> great to be back here. Uh, last week was um, interesting. Uh, we started this series on uh, God, women, and the healing of humanity, and um, I was I was uh, somewhat surprised and somewhat amazed at the at the feedback or response to this because I thought I didn't say anything at all that was even vaguely unusual or new. And yet God seemed to use it so powerfully to affirm and encourage our whole community, including the women in the community. And, uh, and lots of women who said to me, you know, they just had never heard this in church and from the pulpit and from the front. And then we watched, I watched over the week as the sermon got listened to, you know, more than 200 times as people shared the link and people listened. And I thought, wow, Lord, what are you doing here? And um, I said then, I think it's incredibly significant for us, you know, just as Caroli was talking about IJM and that, that her call to uh, work with God against injustice is a way of proving that God is good, even though there's evil. Um, let me tell you, I think part of our job as a church, as we think about renewing the city of Sydney, and I said this last week, I'll say it again, I think... In the face of cynical and skeptical people who rightly look at the church and how we've committed evil at times and how the Bible has been misused as a patriarchal narrative to oppress women, I think a part of our mission is to be a working model of how men and women actually, in God's plan, are meant to get along, how we're meant to love and affirm each other as women and men. So it's massively important that we, we figure this stuff out and we learn in God's plan how we're to get along. Uh, I made this point last week and I, I started with this picture um, which demonstrates a few things, one of which is that I can't draw. Um, but this is a picture showing you the process of reading the Bible Right, that there is a, uh, and if you if you weren't here and you listen to it online, you can hear the explanation of this picture. But there's a recursive process as we we never come to the text of Scripture as blank slates. We always come with pre-understandings, our own culture, our own baggage, our own history, our own traditions, our gender, uh, our relational status. Uh, we bring this to the text. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspires us, the text. Uh, and then the text was written in a history. There's a whole bunch of stuff behind the text. And so we read this. We understand the text. We understand the culture. That changes our minds. That then changes how we read the text. And so there's this recursive process that happens, what the philosophers call the hermeneutical spiral, as, as we spiral towards greater understanding and truth. Um, and what that means is a certain, um, uh, I didn't have this on this picture, an epistemic humility. So we come to the text from a stance of humility saying, um, I don't know everything. I don't know it all. And I need God to continue to speak to me and shape me and change me. And we as a church need that. So we come to the text with humility. All our understandings at one level are provisional. Um, that is that God can change our minds, right? Which is the sign of a healthy relationship. If I never let you change my mind, I'm never letting you have any influence over me, which means I'm controlling you. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm actually distancing myself from you. So we talked about that. We then said, uh, if you recall, that um, there were from Genesis 1 to 3, there were two key 
ways to understand the way God intends women and men to relate to each other, two fundamental truths that shape and define how women and men relate to each other. Now, here's a time for revision. Uh, What were they? Two words. Mutuality. Just for a moment there, I thought my entire vocation was a complete waste of time. (sighs) All right. And equality. Now I know that my life is worth something. People have remembered at least two words that I said. Oh, Lord, take me home now. This is as good as it gets, I think. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. (laughs) Okay, so equality and mutuality. And the point of this is, these, these set up the basic contours of how God understands humanity. Uh, the point I made about our readings of the text of Scripture is any reading of the text of Scripture that leads us to an interpretation that undermines or diminishes either of those two core truths um, is a misreading of Scripture. The arc of Scripture is to be read consistently with this. So, so, so sin is described in Scripture... And, and sin is when, when men and women are not treated as equal, where there's a rupture of our mutuality. But anytime we try and make sin normative, so we read these stories in Scripture, and you say, well, that's how women should be treated, or that's how men should be treated. We've started to violate this principle that the Bible, one piece of Scripture, shouldn't be read in a way that contradicts another. And particularly this massive, uh, fundamental, and consistent teaching of Scripture about the equality, essential equality and mutuality of women and men. And so that's massively important. I also then said, very significantly, uh, what is the picture of how, in God's plan, women and men are meant to relate to each other? From Genesis 2. How did Adam and Eve relate to each other? They were they were naked and without shame. Okay, so that's and um, that's that's a picture of how we are to relate. And that's what God's plan is for, for, for women and for men to relate to each other, actually, and for all human beings. That, that this shame starts to touch deep within us. We feel shame about ourselves. That intrudes into all our relationships. And you can actually understand, once you're sensitized to this concept, you can start to see how, how dealing with shame within us and between us becomes something that energizes so much evil and oppression in the world. Um, But this is God's plan that we become a a community that is free of shame, Uh, not necessarily, as we talked about last week, a community that is free of clothing, uh, this side of the new creation. So we'll keep our clothes on for the moment, um, which is a good thing, Um, but, but God willing, we'll let go of our shame. And he will heal us of our shame and he'll restore us in the way we treat each other, which is a wonderful and beautiful thing. So now we come to Sarah. And what I want to do with you is think about how do we understand this story of Sarah in a way that affirms the essential equality and mutuality of, uh, of Sarah with Abraham. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating story. It is, honest to goodness, an amazing story because it's the story uh, that, is, <laughs> that is set as an answer to the problem of evil. So uh, God started off the world with Eve and Adam. 
they stuffed it up and sin just got worse and worse and worse through Genesis 1 through 11, uh, culminating in the Tower of Babel and the, the nations are dispersed and what's going to happen? And then Genesis 12, it's like God has unplugged the computer and replugged it in, okay? And he started again. He's hit the reset button and he started with another couple, with Sarah and with Abraham. And so let's think together about the ways in which Sarah and Abraham are equal and mutual. So it's not that complicated. Uh, Sarah and Abraham's uh, equality and uh, mutuality. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of the story. You, I would suggest, you know, go back and after church read from Genesis 12 through to 21. And we'll see a bit more. Uh, you'll see the story here. The first thing we want to say is that in this story, Sarah and Abraham... Uh, both have agency um, or power or status, okay? That is, they're both active agents in the story, which is somewhat unusual in ancient literature. Often, you'd only have a male actor or sometimes a female actor. In this story, both are at work together, and both... Uh, have power. In fact, Sarah has a very, very prominent role. Here's how the story goes. Genesis 12. Um, God is going to hit the reset button. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, here's what I want to do. I'm going to start this whole filling and multiplying the earth, healing creation. I'm going to start it again with you. I'm going to bless you and through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, he's got a, this is a re-echoing of Genesis 1 and the creation mandate. To, to fill and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you need certain offspring. So Sarah is included in this. And then in the text that we heard uh, read for us in Genesis 17, when the text is, um, uh, when the covenant with, with Abraham is reaffirmed, we see that Sarah gets a Sarah is central to this as an actor in this process. Um, Sarah, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and she will sure, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Significant kings of people will come to, out of her. Not just this, hey, not just at a grand theological level does she have agency. She's driving the story along because guess what? She's really beautiful. She's, and she's beautiful. And then as now, beauty is power. It really is. Um, I only know this in the abstract. No one's, my beauty has never got in the way of my faith. or No one's ever accused me of being too beautiful for anything. But let me tell you, in this story, this is what happens. Uh, Abraham sets out. He obeys God. He gets Sarah. The story sets off. Abraham's this mighty, swarthy, Middle Eastern man of faith. He's setting out to follow God. And he's got this gorgeous wife with him, Sarah, who's following along with him. And together, they're going to go out and be the start of a new humanity. But her beauty is a great problem. So they get to Egypt. And her enormous beauty poses this great threat to the whole undertaking. Why? Because somehow in the ancient Near East, there was a massive prohibition on sleeping with another man's wife. But there seemed to be a lesser prohibition around killing the husband of the wife so that you could then sleep with the widow. 
which seems a little weird, and I don't quite get their moral compass. I think it had sort of gone a little off kilter. And and the ancient codes, uh, we're we're not exactly sure how they all made sense of this. But Abraham comes comes to Egypt and he goes, listen, man, Sarah, you are so gorgeous, and I love you, and you love me, but we've got a problem here because Pharaoh is going to want you for his own harem. And so what are we going to do? He says, ah, I've got a plan. We'll call you my sister. And then, you know what? Pharaoh won't have any uh, moral qualms about taking you to his harem and sleeping with you because you're not my wife, you're my sister. Now, here's the thing, right? It's a, it's a half-truth because we see in Genesis 20 that, in fact, uh, Sarah did seem to be related to Abraham as the daughter of um, another mother. So they had the same father. So in the ancient world, um, you really wanted to... It was a little... You wanted to marry from within your clan or your tribe, and so often people were, were related both biologically and genetically and, and in marriage. So it was sort of a half-truth, but actually it was a lie. So she goes into Pharaoh's harem, and Pharaoh gives Abraham a lot of money. So Sarah's beauty saves the day, doesn't it? Uh, now, now, you think that just happened once? Actually, um, it happened a second time. In Genesis 20, they do exactly the same thing again, except this time before, um, before the, uh, the pimping out is consummated, God actually intervenes and protects Sarah and the man, and, uh, she, um, and, uh, and they, they're sent off on their way before um, the relationship is consummated. Hmm. So uh, she has great agency and great power. Uh, and, and great love, you know. Why did she agree to do what Abraham suggested? Well, in Genesis 20, he says, uh, because if you love me, he's really saying, if you love me, you'll do this. You'll save my life by making yourself sexually available to uh, this rich, powerful bloke. Isn't that a great story of a powerful woman? That's, that's, I mean, she is great and powerful, but there's a problem, isn't there? Houston, we have a problem. There's a problem, and if you're somewhat skeptical about the whole Christian undertaking, uh, and if you, you know, did arts at university, or you've read The New Atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins and others, you'll know that one of the great critiques of the Old Testament, it's a fundamental sexist and misogynistic book. And that in this text and in the patri- what are called the patriarchal narratives in Genesis and the ancient Near East, women are described as really being the property of men who are um, not much better than animals, really, in the, in the kind of pecking order. You know, there were the deities, and then there were men, and then there were women, and then there were animals. And the Bible seems to endorse that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Genesis certainly seems to present it in that light. And yet, and yet, let's think about it and follow this line of argument and and let's talk about it afterwards or online if you're listening online. I think this treatment of women uh, as essentially subjugated to the self-interest and the economic interests of men, where women essentially function as the property of men, this is after Genesis 3, the default treatment of women in all cultures. You just 
you know, when you, when you read Gary Haugen's book, he's got a whole chapter, I mentioned this last week, on gender-based violence. When you look around cultures all around the world, women, because they're weak, weaker and more vulnerable, are oppressed and treated badly. This is the way it was. So now when God, now you think about this from God's point of view. If God says, how am I going to break into this culture to change it? Well, his intervention to restart and heal humankind has to start somewhere, right? So if he's going to change the way men and women relate, and he's going to do it from within humankind, he's got to start with where people are, which is women are oppressed, right? So Genesis is, this is the revelation of how God is coming into an oppressive patriarchal culture so that from within the revolutionary teaching of Genesis 2, the equality and mutuality of women, the healing and restoration of humankind can come, but it's got to start in the culture that is currently fraught with sin and evil and broken. So that's why it starts in Genesis 12. So when we encounter patriarchal pieces and structures within these stories, it's not a sign that God is endorsing them. It's actually just, well, how else was he going to do it? (laughs) I mean, this is what he's got to do. And then here's what we see, actually. This is where it gets really interesting. The very fact that we think these, cult, these stories are patriarchal and oppressive is a sign that they've done their job incredibly well in our culture to change us. Because the whole trajectory, even while wrapped up is in, in these cultures and, and coming in the, Jewish, in, the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which was patriarchal, climaxing through to Jesus in the early church and then into our history... This, this is a whole trajectory of cultural transformation where we are now the beneficiaries of this. We live in a place and in a worldview based on exactly this revelation, on this text of Scripture, where we now think it's just obvious that men and women are equal. Uh, so it's been successful. Uh, and even around the world, though, this, this way of treating women is still rife. It's still prevalent. So this starts here. I don't think the, the way uh, Sarah is treated in the story is a sign that the text itself is, uh, is an endorsement of patriarchy uh, or the problems. In fact, it sows within itself the seeds of the destruction and the overthrow of the very culture that it's found in. So, uh, how do I, what do I mean by that? Well, the second point, if they're, if they're mutual and equal in their agency and power, even though she's oppressed uh, within it, she still has substantial agency. In fact, she's the one who comes up with a solution to deal with her barrenness, which is a problem we'll come to in a moment. They are both Abraham and Sarah recipients of God's promise, aren't they? When... when uh, God reiterates this covenant in Genesis 17, he, he ends up here. The climax of this covenant, of this promise, is God saying to Abraham that, that Sarah is going to have her name changed. So Abraham's name was changed from Abraham to Abraham as a sign that he was drawn into God's plan to heal the world. The same for Sarah, Right? The same for Sarah. She goes from Sarai to Sarah, and God directly deals with her and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a son. And, um, and she, and then it ends again, by the way, um, in verse 21, the great climax when God, uh, of, of reiterating this covenant, um, is, is that it climaxes with, Uh, with Sarah bearing to you a son this time next year. So they're equal in their reception of the promise of God. Now you go, 
Why is that? That's, not, that's, that's nothing unusual. Um, listen, I'll tell you, even, even 1,500 years after this text was written, in, say, in Jesus' time, uh, in the Roman Empire, sophisticated, urbane Roman culture, women were not treated as capable of having their own religious points of view. So a woman simply believed whatever her husband or her father believed, right? You didn't, you, if you were a woman, you didn't get to choose what you thought or believed about God. You just, if, if your husband was Muslim, you were Muslim. If your husband or your father was Christian, you were Christian. Worship Baal, you worship Baal, okay? The God of the Bible addresses Sarah and Abraham equally, gives his promise to both of them, addresses her personally and directly and says, I'm going to bless you. Wow. That's revolutionary, right? That women today all around the world, including you here, you get to choose what religion you are going to follow. That's a fundamental human right. Where does it come from? Texts like this. Is it worth fighting for? Yes. This matters enormously. We just take it for granted, but it's profound. You're a moral and spiritual agent because you're made in the image of God, whether you're a man or you're a woman. And so Sarah is addressed by God, inherits the promises, the blessing of God shown in her renaming and is equal. Here's another way they're equal. So the first way is by their agency or power. The second way is by being directly uh, addressed by God and involved in God's promise in the renaming. The third way um, is, uh, <laughs> well, let me show you the third way. We've already heard how Abraham committed great evil against Sarah by pimping her out to save his life, by manipulating her and saying, if you love me, then you'll go and join the harem of this rich, powerful man, so my life will be spared. Her life was never in danger. It was all about him. So we go, oh, Abraham. And, you know. Now, look, I read that text, and sometimes it, it does. This text, like much of the world, makes me ashamed to be a man, right? I go, oh, I don't know about you blokes here, but oftentimes I go, oh, man, why? Just deeply, deeply ashamed to be a man. And sometimes... There's a reaction. Sometimes we see this in, in, in some of the feminist literature that says, well, really, and I, you know, all men are rapists. You know, you'll see this sometimes in some of the hardcore feminist literature. The only reason we haven't yet raped is because we haven't had the opportunity to, you know. Uh, you may never have encountered this. I certainly did at university and among some of my, uh, the, the more radical feminist theologies that I've read. Or, and, and I get that. And I get that. Like the father of Israel pimped his wife out to save his life. I mean, he's a lying, weak, manipulative man. Just like us, right? But guess what? Evil is an equal opportunity employer, right? Evil is an equal opportunity employer. Evil is not just distributed narrowly uh, around gender. It's not like, and we love simplicity and simplistic things. Uh, it's not like um, uh, all men are evil and all women by virtue of their gender are good. Because look what happens. Faced with her barrenness. Okay, so... Um, 
barrenness, being childless in the ancient world was a, an utter disgrace. A sign, no matter how beautiful you might be, Allah Sarah, to be childless in the ancient world was a sign of complete failure. Because the very, your life, your, your old age needed to be secured by your children, very simply. But actually the existence of your clan, if you're in a tribal subsistence world, you needed to reproduce. The, the women who were valued the most in the ancient world were actually not the really beautiful, the rich ones, but who? The women who could produce lots of sons. Male children were an invaluable asset in a population-constrained, violent subsistence culture. You know, in the ancient world, uh, any time you met with another tra- clan or tribe, the standard thing was to fight them. The default position when you met with someone other, and that all the anthropologists and historians will tell you this, you just fight. So, so men matter. And if you don't produce a son, you're useless to the tribe. Okay? So Sarah knows this. She's carrying enormous disgrace. She's an utter failure. And now God has added to her disgrace by saying, well, Sarah, you're going to have like a gazillion offspring. And she's like, well, Lord, (laughs) really? Now, they're not as scientifically sophisticated as us, but she's 90 years old. She is seriously postmenopausal, people. It's a long time since she's been, you know, the window of, of her reproductive career seems to be firmly closed. And she knows that, and there's disgrace, and she's like, what am I going to do? Ah, I know what I'm going to do, she says to herself. Now, Sarah, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. A big problem, right? But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. It's God's fault. I've got a plan. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. It does seem that these arrangements did happen in the ancient world. And a, a child born of such a union could be counted as part of the, the barren woman's legacy. There's some evidence to support this. What would we call this today? Surrogacy? Sure. Surrogacy. Let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think Hagar had much choice in this? Could Hagar give consent? Right? No. So in our culture, when a person cannot give consent to sex with another person, what do we call it? Rape. Right? So the, the mother of the Jewish nation... <laughs> is just as evil as the father of the Jewish nation. Isn't that awesome? Sin and evil is an equal opportunity employer. We're, uh, this text, so, so you know, Abraham agreed to what Sarah was doing, said, so she's guiding things along. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And we think then, oh, well, maybe it's all going to work out really well. It just gets worse. When she knew she was pregnant, this is Hagar, she began to despise her mistress. Rightly so. She says, I'm so much better than you. You're barren. I've got a child. You are useless. I have a purpose in life. 
I'm reproducing. You're not. By definition, you're useless. Then Sarai says to Abraham, to Abraham, look, honey, I thought this was going to be a good idea, but I've really messed up. I'm deeply sorry. How can I fix it? Is that what she says? She's like, uh, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Talk about, you know, the solidarity of the sisterhood, right? I'm going to organize for you to be raped, and when this doesn't work out just as how I thought it would be, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to blame God, and I'm going to blame my husband. Then I'm going to ask God to judge you, because, by the way, this is what this phrase means. May the Lord judge between you and me. God judge this useless, no-good husband who did exactly what I wanted him to do. Um, and so what does Abraham do? Ah, oh, he's such a strong man of faith who stands up for the weak and the oppressed. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. So Sarai said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent. I'm going to stand in solidarity with the oppressed women of the world. She just crushed Hagar. She mistreated her so badly that this pregnant slave had no option but to flee, which was certain death, to flee from this house to embrace certain death outside the family because Sarai made her life in the family so, so painful. Wow, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Oh, my goodness. Well, listen, we love simplistic solutions to the world. So here's what, what the, the psychologists call this splitting, where we like to think, you know, uh, I'm all good, you're all bad. Or you're all good and I'm all bad. Or my group is all good and your group is all bad. Or my religion is all good and your religion is all bad. Uh, you know what the Bible does? The Bible never allows us to think of ourselves or others in that way. It's not like all men are bad and all women are good. Do you know what it is? We're equally messed up. Our equality and our mutuality is expressed in our dignity and our value and in our worth made in the image of God, living under his promises and by his grace. But our equality and our mutuality is also expressed in our capacity for evil and oppression and injustice. Wow. So what do we do with that? Very confronting. Very confronting for... All of us, right? Because you know what? It holds a mirror up and it says, um, I'm a mess. You know what it says to me as well? It says both the Abraham story and the Sarah story. Um, every one of us has a price. If you don't think you're really evil right now, it's just because no one's come up with the price. <laughs> you haven't really been tested, right? 
I mean, I, you, you are here and I'm here and we're all looking all lovely and we're sophisticated and most of us are smart and well-to-do and most of us have not committed great evil like this. Why haven't we? Is it because we're somehow better than Sarah? I just don't think we've been tested like she was. You've got a price. I've got a price. If you think you're better than Sarah, it's just because you've not been really tested. I've used this example before in a trivial way. I can think I'm morally good only because I've not been tested in the same way I can think I'm, I'm, I'm really super fit. Um, and, and, that, and I can only think I'm super fit because, you know what, I'm, I've, I've only ever tried to do, you know, like 100 push-ups. But imagine if I tried to do it, you know, like a full Ironman. And, I, and, I can, and if, I, if I test my fitness over 50 meters, then I'm really fit. I can run hard for 50 meters. But what if I'm really tested? <laughs> well, if I've got to run like 60 meters, oh, it's all over then, let alone an Ironman, let alone bench pressing, you know, like 200 kilograms. That's that. I'll just die under there. I'll give up because I've been really tested. We've all got a price. <laughs> there is a, uh, one of the problems in our culture, and I think we need to think about this deeply, about uh, one of our problems is we're, we're, we're simultaneously extraordinarily censorious and judgmental about evil out there and incredibly naive and delusional about our own goodness and the, the, the strengths of our own culture, aren't we? We, we look at, at other cultures and in other times and places, they're terrible, but we're okay. Yeah. Well, look at the epidemic of domestic violence in Australia. Are we really okay? Look at how we've behaved even in the church. So um, our culture struggles to understand how bad we really are. Uh, do you know why? Why do, you think us, why do you think we find it so hard to actually look ourselves honestly in the mirror and see the depth of evil both in, in women's heart and in men's hearts? I'll tell you why, because I'm not seeing any hands. Because it fills us with deep shame, extraordinary shame. And we fear deep, 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 deep down in our souls that there is no hope for the shame ever to be dealt with. So if I admitted it, and if you saw it, and if God saw it, we would be utterly rejected and alone, and that's hell, right? Every culture knows this. Every culture, every person, whether you're irreligious or religious, we all have this deep sense that we, there is this evil, this, this bit of Sarah that will oppress and, and commit great violence to secure our own good. We know that Sarah is in us. And, and we know we're going to have to give an account. We know we've messed up. And so we're deeply, deeply terrified that there is no way that shame will ever be resolved. So if the shame and the Sarah in us is always there, I've got to keep you at a distance. I've got to pretend. I've got to paper over it. I've got to look the other way. So here's the final way in which Abraham and Sarah are equal and mutual. You know what it is? They receive the promise of God that he will use them and save them on the basis of his grace, not their performance. In the end, you see, 
every human actor in the Bible, save one, is tragically flawed. Isn't that right? And what is it that Abraham and Sarah have together? What is it that that unites them at the end of this narrative, at the end of this story? uh, We see what, what what they have together, and it's this. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. You know, this is after she'd orchestrated the rape and the violent oppression of her slave, God, who is good to her. And God was good to Abraham. And so the New Testament says that what they had in common was even in the midst of their evil and their brokenness, they trusted God and he came through for them. So guess what? There is hope for your shame, isn't there? There is hope for all the evil, the Sarahness within each of us to be dealt with because God has a promise for you and for me, doesn't he? He says, he says, I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to give you a future. Not on the basis of what you've done or how you've performed or how you've treated women and children or how you've stood with the sisterhood or how you've embraced uh, the weak and the, the least and the last. I'm going to, I have a plan for you even though Sarah is deep within you. How's he going to do that? Well, there's only one human being who has lived in this world in a way that never participated in the sin of Sarah or Abraham or Eve or Adam. There's only one man. And the promise of God is, you know how he's going to deal with your shame? Do you know how he's going to deal with your Sarahness? Do you know how he's going to come through with his word for you? It's because he's He's going to crucify your Sarahness on the cross. As Jesus, the only truly innocent man, hangs on the cross, what's going on there? All the shame, all the shame in Sarah around her barrenness and her evil attempts to cover over her barrenness and deal with her her shame, all of the extraordinary evil wrapped up in Sarah, all of that, the Bible says, that the one innocent man took upon himself and became sin. He died naked, utterly ashamed, rejected, alone, the victim of gross injustice and oppression and evil. He hangs on the cross and he dies. Why? So that our shame and our sin can be nailed to him and we can be set free. And God can come through and give us his promise and his plan. And he can heal us and he can restore us. And he can wipe away our sin. And he can say, you know, though though, though you have followed in your mother Sarah's footsteps. And that, that should take you to hell. Because of the death of your brother Jesus, I can welcome you into my family and take you to heaven and give you this new creation in this new world. So you know it starts to set us free because I don't have to pretend anymore. You see, how does this heal the way men and women relate? I don't have to pretend 
And you don't have to pretend. You don't have to keep people away from you because you're afraid they might find out what's in you because God sees what's in you and he loved you enough to die for you and to cleanse you and to heal you and put you on a journey to this new creation. And everyone you meet is in the same boat as you. Uh, our, our glory is equally distributed and our evil is equally distributed. We're all in the same boat, but even more significantly, God's grace and his promise comes to each of us. So you know what? I don't have to hide from you. I don't have to hide from me. You don't have to hide or pretend. We can see the sin in ourselves for what it is, and we can see the sin in other people for what it is. And because we know in Christ all of that is dealt with, we can address it, we can look at it, we can turn from it, and we can build a community where this no longer defines us. Let's pray. Our great God, uh, we thank you for the example of our mother of faith, Sarah. <laughs> Oh, Lord, it is um, such great comfort that you did for Sarah exactly what you'd promised. You did, not, you did not allow her shame, her barrenness, her evil uh, to derail your plans to bless her and love her and spare her and use her. And thank you that in Christ, that is true for each of us in this room this morning. We are, the, the good news that you say to us this morning, Lord, is we are far worse than we ever could have imagined. But we are also far more loved than we ever could have dared to believe. And I pray that that love in Jesus, that healing from shame and guilt, will become more real in our lives this morning and that you will heal us, women and men, and set us on a new path of relating to each other. And we ask this in your great name, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Mark.